Hello and welcome to the second episode of the the podcast series Green Thoughts in Grey Spaces, a podcast series by Agora Oxford. And here we explore obstacles to the climate transformation and think about these obstacles and think them through together with our guests. My name is Twan van der Tocht, and today I'm honored to be joined by Professor Maya Guppel. She's a political economist, uh, and her research explores the economic, political, and social prospects uh, for a sustainable transformation of society. Professor Guppel worked for a range of international and German organizations, and most recently she was Secretary General of the German Advisory Council on Global Change. She currently works as the Director of Research at the New Institute. Uh, Professor Guppel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Before we get started, could you tell us maybe a bit more about the kind of work that you do at the New Institute? Mm -hmm. Well, the New Institute was um, founded basically as the idea that science plays a critical role in shaping the kind of futures that we want, and in particular to go at some topics where we might call them persistent problems. So we have seen that the former solutions don't work in the way that we desire them to work, but you don't really get out of them. And so environmental and economic, how do we bring that together? Um, the future of democracy is one issue, but also then the question of values and the human condition in the 21st century. Um, so those have been issues that I've been linking and thinking about in my work. And now this institute puts them center stage and in particular also looks for the cooperation between science and other actors in society and the role that science should play in society when we are in transformation times. And that is a, an exploratory path, uh, not always easy between politicization, obviously, but also taking responsibility. That science staying too silent means that we're also not really living up to the kind of knowledge that we have about the consequences of not taking action. Excellent. Okay, well, before we start uh, thinking about, about the future of this persistent problem, let's start with the status quo. Uh, where would you say that we are uh, in terms of the climate transformation in Europe? Mm -hmm. As with many questions, I think there are different angles that you can take before you start answering them. And one would always be on the international field. We're probably quite leading, which is why Europe uh, has always had a leadership role in the international negotiations on trying to get the Paris Agreement um, forward, for example. So it depends on who you compare it with. If you say politically, we look at the role that's um, also finance supposed to play, that we're now really looking at disclosing the uh, climate risks in some of the investments of the European Central Bank and all that, that is much more progressive in terms of trying to reach climate targets than we see it in other countries. But if you compare it to the actual transformation pathways that we have committed to under the Paris Agreement, we're obviously far from being on a path that would allow for us to get to below or well below two degrees at best 1.5 degrees. And this is why something like the Green Deal and linking that with a circular economy, et cetera, is a good outlook that we actually have some kind of strategy and have some kind of idea of the new identity and progress model of the European continent. But we do see the difficulties in trying to actually implement it. So I think it's a mixed picture. It really depends. Do you compare yourself with a scientific path that is said we should 
get to, then we're not ready. But if we compare it politically to other places, we have a leadership role and we should also live up to it and try to build it further. And what is your take on on it on it personally? I see that um, in your work on on um, on this topic uh, for for the new institute, I'm sure it's all about coming up with solutions, and there's a degree of optimism there. But how optimistic or or pessimistic are you about the climate transformation getting us to where we want to be? Mm -hmm. Well, as a transformation scholar, you used to go up to um, a quite meta level occasionally. So you put things into a historical point of view and perspective. And then we talk about great transformations having happened about three times in the well-recorded human history. So getting from total societies, very agrarian, into, um, into then the industrial one was the last one. So industrial capitalist society. Now we're really thinking that this is an era where a great transformation of a similar kind is taking place. So you're not only looking at getting to decarbonization, but we're looking at a very new energy system. We're looking at very new technological possibilities with the digitalization. We're looking at a new order, this whole nation state order, becoming more regional, global. We're looking at global supply chains rather than maximum regional ones and then uh, or very colonized ones. So the, the whole way that we communicate, who's part of our story, who's part of our tribe, so to say, had been merged into a national one in the last transformation. And now we're really thinking about what is the global citizenship. So there's a lot of things that are being reconfigured at the same time. So from that point of view, I think uh, we still are in the midst of finding out where is it going to land, that next great transformation. And it also means that we're not on a linear path towards something, but it is going to be a battlefield. It's very politicized and we, I think we can all feel it. And it goes some steps in the direction we feel, oh, we're making progress on climate, for example. And then it goes a few steps back. So with Paris 2015, everyone was excited with this new agreement. And then we saw a lot of backlash on some ends and uh, when the Trump administration left it and now, the US is back in, so the multilateral prospect is back. And then we had COVID and we had restrictions. And now we use a lot of money to reboot an economy. Are we using that money to actually make the climate transformation happen? Or are we buffering up old business models that are very climate intensive? So you can see that it's a constant struggle, basically, of building and shaping where we're going to go. But what is clear is that we're not going to go back to anything that's called normality. Um, before Corona. Um, and that is something that I feel makes me optimistic because a lot of people are talking about what we should change to which degree, in which depth, questioning the growth model, et cetera, et cetera, that we had in our economies that you were instantly called something on the very left or something totally utopian if you're mentioning that this should be thought about. And that's completely changed, not only through Corona, but already in the years before when we saw since the financial crisis, maybe, that some aspects of those, this model of, of idea uh, of development is just really not delivering on the overarching societal goals of social inclusion, getting everybody on board and finding sustainability. So from that end, I think there's a huge window of opportunity right now. Okay, well, um, from my perspective, I mean, the, the climate crisis is something that we that we face that is uh, unprecedented. But what, what you mentioned about uh, transformation scholars looking at transformation throughout history, what 
are there are there any parallels or dynamics of transformation that we can that we can take or that we can learn from these historic transformations? Well, I do think that I've called it <laughs> radical incrementalism sometimes, that really when we notice that the old is dying and the new cannot quite yet be born. That's a quote from Antonio Gramsci, who's one of my favorite scholars as a political economist. So we do understand that we have to reconfigure our energy system. We have to do agriculture differently. We have to really think about how do we up the social support systems in our societies again? How do we rein in financial markets so they're more of supporters of the real economy again. So we do understand that the way that we've done things before are not helpful anymore, or they have simply changed societies and the framework conditions so much that what has formerly been a good solution now becomes something that is really undermining the basis of, of good development. And um, so from, from now I've lost where we were, sorry, I'm just trying to make this explanation again, and now you've got to tell me where I have to land in my answer. No um, problem. The, the question was about the lessons that we can draw from historical transformation. Yes. Okay, fantastic. So it is the lesson that we have to be very firm on putting the essence first. So be really, really clear uh, what it is that we want to aim for, to really put the questions of who do we want to be? How do we want to live? What is the human potential? All of those questions to the full, because that's the time when crisis is very strong, that we're trying to um, really think about the future because it feels very open. It feels very unclear where is it going to go. So the ethical questions, these more deeper notions of what is the sense behind all of this really have a role and we should give it that role because in the end it's humans making history. We're the ones shaping the new technological agenda. We're the ones that can decide to rein in financial markets as they are right now. So really not to be intimidated by having to fix something quickly. We've been doing a lot of symptom fixing for a longer time, but now it is about thinking about the structural change and the bigger goals that we want to achieve. And even if that means having lots and lots and lots and lots of small steps by many, many, many actors, because this is what we'll need in our complex societies, to be clear on the outcome having to be radically different from what we've had, instead of just twinkering and trying to fight a few of the symptoms, and yet to have a, a degree of patience to understand how far can you push a particular system at a particular time. So dancing with the system in this notion of radical incrementalism, but to be very clear that putting those more grounded questions, these more deeper questions at the forefront of how is this the future supposed to look like, the oughts, that really the normative compass plays a very, very crucial role right now. Yeah, so this is all about the, the need for a shift in mindset. And in your books, you also mentioned the need to think courageously to overcome these challenges. Why, why is this so important? And also maybe why is this so difficult uh, from our current position? Well, I think we're, um, when we look at humans, we're also creatures of routine. Right. And we are also creatures of identity. So challenging some of the things that have made up a lot of who we are today on such a deep level is not always it can be liberating, but it can also be intimidating to a very big degree. So that's on the individual level. And we're saving energy by going through routines. So something like the pandemic now has been shaking up quite a lot of the routines just by a structural change that had to happen. 
So this poses a moment when those questions can pop up more easily rather than us frantically running in our everyday lives trying to keep all the balls in the air that are there. And then obviously the whole other thing is that we're social creatures. We're not just individuals, but we're embedded in a cultural idea about what it is to have a good life, a cultural idea of success tied with monetary compensation schemes, tied with roles that we then play in society, tied into institutions that have particular criteria through which you will make a career in them or no. And this is the kind of patterned freedom that we all under, live under. So understanding the social embeddedness is something that I find really key because it allows for us to look for the peers that encourage us to do things differently. And obviously we can understand where the fear of really IA voicing that something doesn't work anymore or really stepping away from doing what was called normal um, is a risky agenda to a certain degree and what kind of alliances and what kind of support structures do we need to really dare to step away from something that is to a certain degree keeping us hostage. If I want to feed my children at the end of the month, if I need to buy my mortgage or pay off my mortgage saying, hey, well-being agenda, I want more time wealth and then I can consume more, it's just not working because unless we're raising wages, for example, and having an agreement about a future labor market, I might not necessarily be able to buy that mortgage if I reduce my working hours. So I am also trapped in the way that the current um, yeah, workings of society are. And this is why I think it's always a collective agenda to try to change the structures under which we then all can become more true to what we or many people I receive right now as, as feedback already desire where we'd like to go. So the, the notion of radical incrementalism suggests that this change comes about through many, many actors taking many, many small steps. So how does, how does this perspective on many actors um, compare to the perspective that this change is something that, is, uh, that comes about through actions and behavior of politicians and policymakers and political elites. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We've been um, tinkering with the term we a lot recently. And my particular we means the people that I work with also trying to bring some of the messages of science more into society. And from a systems point of view, you know that there is no untouched individual action or untouching individual action. So we are always creating resonance and are being inspired or pushed or triggered into our actions to a certain degree by who is around us and what kind of information we get and um, behavior we get, et cetera. So there is a we that we can't break away from as much as we'd like the individualism <laughs> and have fostered individualism in the way that we do. And this has been a huge debate in the climate um, agenda, obviously, with climate justice. And here in, in Germany, you still have to justify whether you want to have a, an agenda of prohibition and taking away from people and telling them they have to cut down and tighten their belts when they can't drive a fat SUV, for example. And then how can we claim that individual freedom without understanding that obviously taking that freedom has a huge effect on others in the global south or future generations because they will definitely suffer from the consequences of rising CO2 emissions. So if there's a different way of catering for individual mobility, 
then having an oversized too heavy that's road destructing uh, road blocking vehicle that also emits quite a lot of co2 unnecessarily when you look at other engines that are possible why is it freedom and an encroachment of free on freedom of individuals to say maybe we'll just kind of get rid of that kind of solution to providing individual mobility so th this notion of where is the we in there is something that will be, always be negotiated. And it is interesting where we draw the boundaries. You've seen that in the populist movements right now, um, where the nationalism also in vaccination has become much stronger again, when the feeling of Jesus, the global crises get a bit out of hand and my own efficacy of having an effect onto um, the development of, of the, the future is very low. I might try to decrease the size of what I am responsible for in order to feel more in control again. And this is why the, the playing with the we and the notion of who's responsible for what is something that is crucial to also find an answer on the populist movement because they were pitching different we's against each other. So it's the othering that prevails. And how do we get towards a we that has a belonging element in it? And then obviously the elite or privileged part of society that has a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of money, and thus whose decisions have a lot of impact on everyone else's, do carry an additional responsibility. Um, and in German, we have it in the foundation law, in the Grundgesetz, for example, Eigentum verpflichtet. So possession comes with an obligation, with a responsibility. So if you own some, something, you have a responsibility as to how you're using it, to which consequences and effects on the wider society. Excellent. Okay, well, let's let's move on to uh, another thing that you you write about a lot in in your uh, in your books and in in the talks that you do, um, which is the the current economic uh, paradigm, the need for a, a paradigmatic shift. Um, so others have lauded the resilience of the current economic paradigm in being able to stimulate technological development and innovation uh, and solutions needed for the sustainability transformation. So, what is what is your view on this? Hmm. Well, I, I think there's um, what we in, in, in our type of research, and now I mean the sustainability transformation research, I'm not speaking for all research or anything, but for that kind of pocket where I feel at home um, with, with the way that I look at things and try to understand things. We would never separate technology from society. They're always social technical, and then the kind of environmental part comes in social technical environmental systems or ecological systems because you will not have a technological development that is separate from its impact on planet earth and the possibilities of ecosystems to carry that um, technological development and then obviously yes we have uh, improvements in terms of the efficiency or in the substitution energy being just one grand example, where we're trying to get renewable energy instead of fossil energy, and it's a crucially important aspect of the sustainability transformation. Yet, we do obviously have a lot of research on so-called rebound effects. So it is, Jevons already said in 1860 or something, around the coal issue in the, United, uh, in the UK, where he said, as long as we're not really talking about a maximum that we should take out of the planet, we're just basically going to use the same resources that we haven't used in one particular area for something else. And this is what we've been doing a lot. So we've reduced the energy intensity of single products. We've reduced 
the improved efficiency um, on material usage, on energy usage in, in a lot of areas. We reduce the carbon intensity of particular items, but we have at the same time massively upped the amount of items and products and services that are being, um, yeah, being used in society. So unless you're embedding a technological revolution in the societal goals that we're trying to go after, and are not questioning whether ownership, for example, of a lot of hardware <laughs> or ownership of electric vehicles for everyone having a car is actually going to be working from the kind of resource base that we have. And also where is all the energy gonna come from that we have to harvest through solar panels, through windmills, et cetera, when we're not changing energy systems far enough or fast enough, having everything electrified is just not going to be sufficient to meet the climate goals. So unless we're really understanding where is the overuse of resources still triggered, even though on the technological side it's improving, we're not going to find the answer. And this is why it's always so important to put technology into the wider societal development. And also right now to understand, I think quite critically, that it is a lot of substitution that goes on. When you look at where climate technological funding is going, it's about farming in cities, it's uh, about the renewable energy, obviously, and then it is about fake meat. And so we're trying to change the technological surface <laughs> of our planet by achieving very singularized goals, for example, CO2 reduction, indoor farmings don't do much for biodiversity, for example, they don't really help to improve the soil and how it is helping us with the water circuit on this planet. They don't usually say much about where all that massive energy um, is supposed to come from that they need in order to be shining on their beautiful little leaves um, 24 seven. So it, it, is, it is a techno fix agenda that doesn't look out for being embedded in social and environmental conditions. And this is what's worrying me. And then when you say this, you're being branded as an anti-technological person, an anti-progress person. <laughs> but progress is not having more and more and more and more of everything. Progress is trying to meet social goals within planetary boundaries. And sometimes that might mean doing less of stuff. And that's something that the economic system is not very good at. What do you think about COVID and the, the, the economic crisis that comes with it as, as a shock? Um, to to that paradigm, uh, maybe as an opportunity to spark this kind of new thinking that you you talk about. Yeah, I, I think the first well, we call it lockdown in Germany, but it's not really been a lockdown comparable to a curfew, basically in other countries. So, um, but staying at home, not knowing what this thing is, and really having reduced economic uh, activity to the basics of providing food and healthcare to people, that was last year. Um, about a year ago in March and April. And I felt that was really, really spurring this reflection about what are we doing? How's this come about? What are our priorities? There was a lot of talk about solidarity. There was the new term that really made the rounds was Schicksalsgemeinschaft. So you're uh, a faith community. And obviously these are terms that we had tried to introduce in the climate discourse for a long time from the kind of scientific, but also from the NGO movement to say, we're in this together. This is planet Earth, still like a spaceship Earth, basically. So here's one of it. So we are a fake community in the end. And this virus not accepting borders is similar to the CO2 molecules. We can't save biodiversity if we're going only national because the circuits of 
um, biodiversity and water circuits, etc., are just crossing human-made borders. So there has to be a different way of cooperation. And the other thing I hope that we might learn from, at least we had it in the German media a lot, is this flatten the curve. This notion of preventing something bigger might mean you have to start changing things when you are not completely shocked by uh, crisis yet. So before we are overwhelming the health system and before we have images like Bergamo in our societies, we might want to keep people at home because that will avoid that complete runaway effect of something getting out of control. And this is something obviously that the climate movement has been trying to put forward so long. Say the next 10 years are crucially important if we're going to flatten the CO2 curve early enough before we have runaway effects in the oceans, in the setting free a lot of CO2 and methane from melting glaciers and melting tundra, melting tiger. So it is, once a system is being changed in its dynamic, you don't easily get it back. So this early, early preventive measure is actually saving a lot of money, saving a lot of hardships, being, we feel it's hard, it's radical, the kind of changes that are being demanded, especially for young people now, but it basically means we've been waiting for so long that we already have the first also climate impacted crises across the globe, including droughts, et cetera, in Germany. So really being anticipatory and preventive action, crucially important, but we do see the prevention paradox, obviously all around, where people are now saying, oh, it costs so much and now people aren't dying. Yes, because we have done so much, they're not dying. So we have to start thinking systemically, I think, and then it could be a huge way forward um, to learn from, from the corona, trying to track a virus and how it's happening and trying to track value chains and how they're actually linked together, trying to think about what is really crucially foundationally important when we have to shut down an economy, what are the things that we don't want to shut down or want to shut down last? And what is the most important for people in crisis moments? And how do you strengthen this? So I, do, I don't want to give up, I mean, that's our duty as scientists um, to hope that rational and thinking and understanding is absolutely going to help us forward in preventing other crises like, or disasters really, like the climate uh, scenario. Yeah, because my, my follow-up question was going to be how, how widespread are these, these new ways of thinking? Because from my perspective, um, I'm, I'm from the Netherlands and we see that um, the other side of, of the COVID is, is this um, renewed surge of political opposition um, to science, to um, policymakers in um, using science as a reason for politics. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what is your take on this? Mm -hmm. No, we have it here too, and it's really worrisome. And we just had a huge social media... <sighs> I don't know, <laughs> backfiring moment, I would say, because there was an article trying to point out why it is not the right way um, to just say, since scientists are now in the media more, trying to explain the correlations between things, the causalities between things, and how policy might react to the findings that come out of uh, science, that their opinion, A, is an opinion, <laughs> because the scientific way of trying to make sense of the world is one that is very different from just reading newspapers and walking around and doing a different job. And this is why we have it. And so either we say, let's just get rid of science and everybody who can speak well can come in the media and say what they think should be done. 
or we should acknowledge that there's a different way of trying to create knowledge in an ideally reproducible way, but it's not always going to work that way. But we see patterns, we see regularities, we're reiterating what our uh, learnings from the past, we're trying to make sense of this, we're trying to cut through complexity to get into the most important drivers. And natural sciences obviously being much more um, specific there than social sciences. So there has to be a distinction there as well. Um, and it is more so in the wording in German, I think, than in, in English. But yes, obviously there is a backfire moment. And I think it is partly due because politicians are have been a bit um, abusive of science. I mean, if they just say the scientists say this needs to happen, that's not going to help because the scientists are not saying what needs to happen the scientists are always putting out options and pathways but they're clear in the analysis of the correlations of what might unfold unless we change the current trajectory but the political and societal part in this is to decide what is the risk degree that we want to take who is going to be impacted most unless we change something. And then it's to be transparency about this. And that's something that science can't deliver. I mean, out of the researcher's point of view, you can be as transparent as possible with the basic assumptions in your models, um, the basic cost benefits analysis that is underlying when you're saying, oh, that's gonna cost a lot, or, oh, that's actually gonna be a good investment. That in itself is huge, it's often not made transparent. But this, this discussion about our ethical guidance, our trade-offs that we want to take into consideration, the kind of risk profile that we want to take, the we <laughs> that we shape, and for who we feel responsible. And um, all that is part of what society has to deal with. And so to say the scientists have said that we have to do it this way, it's just not helping for, um, well, the scientific community or the research community play its role in the division of labor of how we're trying to get towards achieving goals that we said we want to achieve. <laughs> the health of keeping people healthy, avoiding people dying, avoiding climate catastrophe, all of that are societal goals that we have in our strategies that we've formulated, that we've got international treaties on. And then when scientists come forward and say, actually, looking at the data, looking at trends, looking at patterns, we can tell you that you will not achieve those unless you change what's happening now. We can't do less than that. But to say that that's dictatorship, well, is that a is that a flaw of our political system rather rather than um, the individual views of uh, of individual political elites? So that that this transparency is perhaps not encouraged by the way that we conduct politics. Mm. Well, I think it is. For me, that would be a crucial step in in trying to um, have more clarity and transparency behind presumably factual equations. So this is why I've been working as a political economist <laughs> to say economics is not value-free. Economics is not objective. Economics is not neutral. Economics is always carrying a lot of ethical judgments in it. Because how you're putting a price on something and money, thus pricing, is the key term with which we're building all of those equations. So there's nothing objective in them. And we've been arguing about this for so long. And the care work is just from the social side when we're saying, okay, GDP is measuring the progress of society. Hell no. I mean, we've seen that now. I'm not being paid as a teacher. 
but I've been having my child at home for seven months or my two kids at home for seven months and have tried everything to also be teacher to them. Um, and looking after your beloved is something that the labor market is going to punish you for because, oh, you can only work part time or you're not available all the time. So you just not get as much of a wage increase as the others, but performing better. But you're providing a huge service to someone else in this community called society. And the same holds for ecosystems. They are basically regenerating themselves for free for us, unless we disturb them too much. But the value created in the ecosystems, and there's one study about pollination only, 150 billion a year. We're not factoring this in. We're easily risking to lose the kind of spread it, reliable pollination degrees that we have been used to now. But then we're celebrating Walmart and others for their technological progress because they're having created a drone that might substitute bees. That's the craziness sometimes about the economics way of looking at the world. And then it's a fantastically promising business model that a lot of investment goes into. And so just saying, look, I mean, small little drones of bee size are actually quite fragile. <laughs> they all need external energy provision. They all need scarce resources. Why don't we just keep the bees? I mean, they're alive. They're really robust. They're growing back parts and bits where they've been hurt instead of just lying there flat out and having to be found by a human to be repaired. And they don't all need sunlight, but they can generate their own energy from different sources of food, etc. So it is really strange how little we're talking about, especially this presumable objective way of measuring where we're going and how dominant this economistic way of talking about progress and talking about possible solutions has become without us noticing how much that's closing down our way of looking at options and really limiting the resilience of what we have been given before. And so this is, yes, I find the economics discipline really has a duty right now to open up in such a crisis to really say, okay, what is the update that we need to put there so that we can actually help solving the problems that we have long known are there instead of constantly coming forward with solutions or assumptions or ideas about best ways forward that are just driving us past solving the ecological and social problems. Well, we're approaching the, the end of our time, but maybe it's it's good to end on a on a maybe a concrete positive. Um, so with all these, these obstacles in mind, what we like to do is um, give you the freedom to implement any kind of concrete policy change, uh, hypothetically. Um, if, if you had this opportunity, which which policy or which policy change would you implement to achieve what we talked about today um, and, and the goals that we, we discussed? Mm. Um, well, it is unfortunately not one policy change that's going to get us out there, but we have to think, think systemically there as well. But I think the one crucial, or well, maybe three, um, three or four crucial intervention points, A, is really push back on the financialization of uh, all of our existence. We're building plutocratic systems, foodalist-like, or the foodalism-like systems, and still we have to argue about not uh, intervening in markets if we want to talk about more regulation. So that is completely ignoring the factual state of affairs by now. So how do we make finance a servant of the real economy and society again? Because money can be such a fantastic energy source. I mean, inventing a credit system has been amazing for what people can do. But now we're not having an investment system anymore that 
put something additional into an existing system so that that system can flourish and become better, but we have an extraction system. That money doesn't care anymore where it goes, it just wants to come out bigger. And if that thing where it goes into temporarily is going to be still alive afterwards, it doesn't mind either. So that for me is maybe the biggest um, challenge where I think a lot of alliances could be found between really, really good business that want to do things more sustainably. And they find it so hard under the current market conditions and the current expectations from investors to get there. And to educate people about these kind of connections is obviously the other side. So investing in people as our prime agency and then really get the kind of means of implementation. Every UN agreement, you have the principles, you have the goals that you want to achieve, et cetera. And then there's this chapter about means of implementation and finance and technology are always means of implementation. And we've made them the kings and queen of what people are allowed to do and if we can save the planet or no. So that needs to be flipped around. And we can only do that through education and through reining those two in, the digital revolution and driving back finance. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, for the, for the conversation today, and for sharing your insights with us on this, uh, on this very important topic. Um, just rest me to wish you all the best uh, with your work at the New Institute, and, uh, and thank you again. And I thank you as well.